Well, go ahead and please open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Last week, if you were here, remember, we looked at the entire book of Hebrews. I attempted to preach the book of Hebrews to you. This week, we are going to zoom in on two verses. And as you're turning there, let me get this thing, there we go. As you're turning there, let me warn you that this will be a very uh, political sermon, right? We're, we're in intense campaign season, right? Election year. Should there be a political sermon, maybe? Some of you aren't so sure. Well, the question in politics, as I see it, is about who should submit to whom? Who should listen to whom? Or to put it another way, politics is about whose word matters more than anyone else. It's about who has the final say. And therefore, people are rightly very concerned about who will occupy the White House uh, come next year. Because the person in that office speaks with great authority. His, or perhaps her, words matter more than, any, than many other people. Right? Right? Uh, Wars are started with the words the president speaks. Countries are demolished or restored. The president can pardon, so life and death is determined by the words. Politics also matters for all of life. I had a conversation with a friend recently, and he gently corrected me on one point that I had said. I I made a comment about something being political in like a negative sense, and he said, Mike, don't you realize all of life is political? Because all of life is dealing with the question, how do we resolve conflict by deciding whose words we should listen to? I recently overheard a child say to somebody, I'll listen to him, but not to you. Now that child was wrong because he should have listened to that person. But I thought to myself, aren't we all making decisions like that all the time? Does this person have the right to correct me or not? Uh, this person can define the terms of the relationship in this area, but then I define the terms in this relationship in this area. You know, if we took time, we could probably create a list of all the people who have authority in our lives, and we could sort of order that list with the people who have the least amount of authority to the person who has the greatest. And the real question is, who is at the very top? Whose word matters for you more than anything else? Well, that's the question that the book of Hebrews deals with. And that's why this sermon is very political. You see, the book of Hebrews was written to uh, Christians who had converted out of Judaism and out of pagan religions. And when they were Jews and pagans, they really faced no persecution from the government Uh, Because the Roman government had given a special dispensation to the Jewish people to allow them to worship however they wanted. And the pagans, of course, fit right in with pagan Rome. There wasn't any problem there. But when these people became Christians, suddenly King Jesus was their highest authority. And, And Rome took issue with that. I mean, remember the words that got Jesus crucified, Right? They said, we have no king but Caesar. The Jewish community also took issue with 
the former Jewish people now pledging their allegiance to Jesus because the Jews, of course, did not recognize him as the Messiah. And they did not really like the Christians using the Old Testament scriptures to try to persuade people to believe in Jesus. So what happened uh, in the situation that the book of Hebrews was written to, the, the people to whom it was written, for, for them, the, the Roman government and the synagogue really conspired to make their life as difficult as they could. And at some point, what probably happened is somebody within that Christian community said, do you realize that all the problems that we are facing in our lives stem from our allegiance to Jesus? I mean, we had our houses taken away. Our kids were kicked out of school. Jacob over there uh, was in prison for two months, all because of the status that we give to Jesus. I wonder, would there be a way to, uh, you know, keep the Old Testament scriptures, maybe even recognize that Jesus wasn't so bad, but sort of scale back, you know, tone back their allegiance to Jesus, tone back the degree of authority that they attribute to him so that they will not be uh, um, rejected and outcasts in the world. You see, they were tempted to, view, to change their view on Jesus in order to accommodate themselves to the surrounding culture. And friends, I wonder if you might agree that we face a similar temptation today. I mean, in our world today, religion doesn't seem like it's such a bad thing. Almost everybody in Greenbelt is religious to some extent. I remember my first week ever in Greenbelt. I, I think I was at a yard sale. I happened to run into a guy, and, and he, uh, he found out that I was the new pastor at the church. And he said, oh, that's great that you're a pastor. And he said, quote, I love uh, metaphysical conversations with people. Metaphysics means beyond the physical world. It's the realm of religion. And I thought to myself, I've never heard that word used outside the philosophy classroom before. What kind of place is this? (laughs) It's a great place, right? Everyone's religious. Religion is okay. But looking to Jesus as the final authority... Looking to Jesus as the sovereign ruler over the world, the crucified and risen Messiah, well, that's a little bit different. Listen to what our church statement of faith says about Jesus. It says, he is the only mediator, the prophet, priest, and king of the church, the sovereign of the universe. That word only is a bit of a struggle for some people. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you just struggle with the the exclusive claim. It's okay, Jesus is Savior, but only Savior. Only way to God. That's that's a little bit harder, perhaps. Well, friends, if if you're struggling with, with that this morning, I'm glad you're here. And I hope I can challenge you to try to understand our Christian philosophy of life from the inside. Try to consider, if I believed what the Bible is, is, is saying, would I then hold to that view as well? Try to understand where we're coming from. And from my experience, the view that, of Jesus that our statement of faith describes, I think, makes us unpopular today. So we may be tempted to roll back our view of Jesus so as not to be thought as so entirely strange by our surrounding community, by our neighbors, by our coworkers, by our friends. I'd be surprised if, it, if that temptation didn't cross your mind in some way. Well, let's see what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus in order to 
encourage us in this way. And by the way, let me, you may be wondering why I picked the first two verses only. And that's because the book of Hebrews is so rich in theology. I didn't just want you to you know, be overwhelmed that, that taking a drink out of the fire hydrant kind of thing. I wanted to go slow enough that we can really dissect and, and understand this theology. And more importantly, that we can apply it to our lives. If you were here last week, you might remember I said that, that Hebrews is so rich in theology. But none of it is for mere academic purposes. He wasn't interested that they would score high on their theology test. That wasn't the point of the book being written. It was for life. Every bit of it was meant to be applied to how we live our lives. Okay, so without further ado, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, this is short, so listen up to this section. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use this passage to enrich our lives in the knowledge of Christ. Lord, we pray that our minds, our hearts, our wills would embrace Christ as the center of everything. Lord, we pray that we would ground our entire life upon him. Lord, we we know from your word, from the words of Christ, that it is foolish to build our house upon the sand. And it is wise to build our house, our life, upon the rock. So, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to build our lives, the foundation of everything we think and believe and love, upon the rock of ages, upon Christ. We pray that you would cause us to love him. Lord, we pray that that we would be so taken by Christ that our minds would just drift to his glory and excellence when we're not thinking of anything in particular at all. Lord, we think maybe about how a a bird might soar around a mountain, looking at all angles of it. And we pray that in our minds we would soar around the glory of Christ, thinking of his divinity and his humanity, his humiliation in death and his exaltation in glory. We pray that we would see his compassion and his holiness, his grace and his loving rule. We pray that Christ would capture our imagination. We pray that we would care what Christ thinks more than we care about anything that anyone else thinks. We pray that we would receive his word as it's preached. Lord, we pray that his word would have more weight in our lives than the words of anything else. Lord, we pray that if we fear him, if we take him seriously, that we do not then have to fear anything else. Lord, work in our lives this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how do you think that passage that I read would address the temptation that the author of Hebrews, the, 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 the recipients of this letter, of this sermon, faced? How would it address them? Well, I think it would say that Jesus' words matter more than anything else. And it would say that Jesus speaks with the highest authority, because his speech is the the climactic, the greatest revelation from God. And the clear implication that is developed throughout the rest of this book is that because Jesus speaks as the climactic revelation of God, 
then we must hold fast to him. We must believe in him and hold tightly to him, and we cannot abandon him even for a minute. Because if we leave Christ, we leave everything that is good, and we have nothing. Now, before I go on, it might be helpful to explain what uh, the author means when he, he talks about God speaking through his son. What is this speech? What is this kind of revelation? Well, it includes, no doubt, the words of, uh, of Christ when he was on earth, right? Christ spoke words when he was on earth. And, and the speech of Christ here, the speech of God through Christ, no doubt includes those words. But I think even more, when it talks about God speaking through his son, it, it means the work of Christ in his death and resurrection and the way in which the Bible then interprets that death and resurrection. So, for instance, God's speech through his son is when Jesus says, uh, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And then Jesus actually does that. He dies as a ransom for many for those who would believe in him. And and it is when Jesus rises again from the dead, and the Apostle Paul explains that in his resurrection from the dead, all who believe in him also have new life. That is the, the speech of God through his Son. The speech of God through his Son is the gospel. It is the message of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And the point of the author here is that that speech of the gospel is God's climactic and highest revelation, and therefore we should hold on to it more tightly than we hold on to anything else. And this passage stresses the supremacy of Jesus' speech by contrasting him with the prophets. Did you see that here? Verse 1, Long ago God spoke in many times and in many ways to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by his Son. Now, to understand this contrast, first consider what this contrast is not. It's not a contrast between, on the one hand, God not speaking, and then God speaking. He's not saying that long ago God never said a word, but now he speaks a lot. That's not what he's saying here. God speaks. It's a contrast of mode, but God speaks. And that's a a foundational assumption of our theology. Uh, It reminds me of a book that had a huge impact on me when I was a young believer, Um, a book by... Francis Schaeffer called He is There and He is Not Silent. And that book helped me see that I can't, even when I say I believe in God, I can't sort of construct God however I would want to in my mind. I can't do that because God has spoken. And therefore, because God has spoken, I must give attention to what God has said. I must understand God as he has revealed himself in his word. You see, the dividing line between all of humanity is not between those who would believe in God on the one hand and then not believe in God on the other. No, the dividing line is between those who who believe in God that he speaks and therefore listen to his words and those who would not believe in God. See, that's the crucial difference. Do we believe that God speaks and that therefore his word ought to be heeded and listened to or do we not? You see, we could ask the question, what is the difference between a God who does not speak and no God at all? And the answer is, not very much. Because if we don't believe that God speaks, then we just end up conjuring up God based on our own distorted beliefs and desires. And friends, that's not God, that's an idol. 
And the Old Testament tells us very clearly that the difference between the true God and idols is that the true God speaks and the idols don't. And if we follow the true God, we become like him and have a relationship with him because we hear his word and know him. Okay, so God has spoken. That's a fundamental assumption of our, our, our life, of our Christianity, of the Bible. But how has he spoken? That's where the contrast comes in. The phrase there, in many times and many ways, talking about how God spoke through the prophets, reveals that when God spoke through the prophets, there was something incomplete about what he was saying. Yes, it was true, of course. Of course it was true. But it wasn't, it wasn't complete. Um, imagine you're trying to find out what is in a dark room with a flashlight. Have you ever done that? We, we went camping recently, and we did a lot of trying to find things with flashlights. And, and sometimes those flashlights were very low on batteries, because we did it so much, that uh, you know, it only has a very small area that illuminates. And when you do that, you, you see things that you, you, you know true things about what's there in the room or whatever you're looking at. But, of, of course, you don't get the full picture. And see, that's kind of like what, the, not getting the full picture is like what it was like when God spoke through the prophets. The prophets revealed true things, but there was a lack of cohesion, a lack of, of, of comprehensive view. The, the people there had the trust that God would be able to resolve these apparent conflicts, even though they didn't see how he would do that. But now, climactically, in his son, God has spoken and, and his son is the light of the world. His son is like turning on the light switch. Oh, I see the whole room now. I see how it fits together. Through the son, we see most clearly who God is and what God's will is for his people. But the question we need to consider now is what makes the son God's climactic revelation? Why is it through the Son that God has spoken climactically and completely? Well, it's not first because of what he says. It's because of who he is. It's because he is the Son. The qualification, first of all, is that he is the Son. And Son refers to the similarity that he bears to the Father. You know, we have that phrase, like father, like son. So when it, it, it highlights that he is the son, it highlights his similarity to the father. It is that he is a, an accurate representation of the father. And of course, now we are bringing up the Trinity. This gets deep very quickly. See, the son implies that he is the son of the father. So now we have the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is the same likeness, but they are different. Now, if you see, you see a person who is schooled in the Old Testament, when they read this about God speaking through his son, it would blow their mind. Because if there's anything that is clear in the Old Testament, it is that God is one. But then in the New Testament, in God's final climactic revelation through his son, we realize that this one God is the Father, is the Son, and is the Spirit. And it's because that this, they're one, truly, but they're also three at the same time. Don't ask me how to explain that all, because there's a mystery here, but that's what is revealed, and that's what we must believe. And because they are one, one essence, the Son is guaranteed to resemble the Father. The Son is guaranteed to represent His Father. We see this more clearly in verse 3, which we'll look at in two weeks, Lord willing. 
It says he, this is the son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his character. And there's really no way to read that verse without concluding that the son is God. God's final revelation is through God. Think of the parable that Jesus told of the wicked tenants in the vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard sent various messengers. Those are the prophets of old. But they didn't listen to those. And then God said, okay, I will send my son. The assumption there is that his son will be able to speak truly for the father. And that is why God's climactic revelation is through his son. But the unique thing about the son is that he is also man. You see, the Son is always the Son. He is always eternally God. But at some point in human history, he assumed a human nature. And it is clear from this passage that the author is referring to that time when Christ has assumed a human nature because he says, in these last days. And the last days here refers to the time after Christ has taken on true humanity and then suffered and died and rose again. That's the last days because there's nothing else for him to do. He's already done it all. So when it talks about the Son, about God speaking climactically in the Son, it is talking about him speaking uh, through the Son as the Son is both God and man. And friends, think about, this is where it gets practical, okay? Some deep theology, but here's where it's practical. Think about what difference that makes for God's revelation, for the revelation of the Son. You see, because he is the eternal Son, the message that the Son speaks is outside of our human history. It doesn't emerge within history. It's outside of our experience. And friends, that makes the word of Christ, the gospel, qualitatively different than any other speech we might hear from the greatest speakers on earth. Perhaps you you did enjoy some of the speeches at the recent party conventions. That's fine. But you have to realize that their messages emerged from within history. They were a product of their own time and space. In contrast, the eternal son, because he is the eternal son, speaks to us from outside our human history, outside our time and space. And thus he speaks with greater authority and greater clarity, giving us a message for all time and for all people. But because he is also man, he speaks that message in such a way that we can truly receive it. He speaks within our history. He speaks from outside of our history, but he speaks to us then within our history. At the very end of the book of Hebrews, the author brings up the the time when God had spoken to the people at Mount Sinai. And and when God spoke to the people through Mount Sinai, the the revelation that he spoke was hardly, was not veiled or mediated much. So so the people trembled at it because it was just God speaking. And they, they told Moses, Moses, stop God from speaking to us because if he speaks to us anymore, we're going to die. They couldn't bear to receive the, the revelation of God. God is, is present in his word, so hearing God's word directly is sort of like seeing the face of God, and, and no one can see the face of God and live. But in these last days, when God has spoken through us to his son, he's spoken to us through one who is, who is a fellow, uh, fellow human, a fellow pilgrim, a fellow sufferer a fellow member of the human race 
who had to obey God just like we have to obey God. And therefore, the message that the Son speaks to us comes with just as much authority as when God spoke from Mount Sinai. But it comes to us in such a way that we can receive it and we can be changed by it. Uh, consider what is going on in, in the, uh, the elections right now, in, in, the, uh, in the debates right now. Two, two candidates are trying to convince the American public that they deserve for their words to matter more than anyone else's. And they're trying to do that by convincing the American public that, one, they understand what it's like to be ordinary citizens, right? Isn't that part of it? Who, who, who knows what people really are like? And the other aspect is that they're trying to convince everybody that they have the character and experiences to lead the American people. And they're trying to defame each other by saying things like, you're out of touch, or you don't have the qualifications to lead. So the ideal candidate is one who is both exceedingly normal and yet extraordinary in a way to be able to lead. The ideal candidate is like the people to relate to the people, but set apart from the people to lead the people. Friends, consider how Jesus stacks up with that criteria. He is like us in every respect, yet without sin. He understands our temptations, and yet he is God. So his words come to us with absolute authority. He can speak into our situation, into our sin and misery, and call us out of our situation into the life of God. Friends, I wonder, do you receive the word of Christ in this way? Later on, the author of Hebrews will say, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Because of him who is speaking, because of the character of Christ, do you receive his words? Do you receive them with authority and with compassion? Perhaps one of the reasons why the Bible might not excite you and the gospel might not energize you is that you merely consider what Jesus says and not who Jesus is who says it. Consider him who is speaking. That's the message of Hebrews. Consider him who is speaking. Consider the divinity and the humanity of Christ. He deserves for his words to matter more than anyone else. So listen to them. Believe them and keep them. But the author of Hebrews does not stop there with simply the identity of the Son. This is sort of the second point of the sermon. Shorter though, don't worry. He also gives support for why we should listen to the Son because of, listen to this, the Son's all-encompassing role that the Father has appointed for him for in history. The all-encompassing role that the Son has in human history. Um, notice the end of verse 2. This is what he says. Whom he, this is God, whom God appointed, the, the whom is the Son, God appointed as heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. That's describing the Son's all-encompassing role in human history. Let's just take those two phrases apart a little bit. What does it mean here that the Son is heir of all things? He's heir of all things. What does that mean? Well, you might be helped to know that when the Bible talks about the heir, it's not just talking about what we think of it is as, you know, somebody dies and then you get something from that person. You, you receive it as an inheritance. It's really talking about 
the idea of getting that what you have rights to, receiving what is your just due. That's what the Bible means by heir. And, and what it's talking about then is that Christ receives all things. The Son receives all things. All things are lawfully His. And if they're His, that means that then He can do with them whatever He wants. He has authority over all things. That's what it's referring to. Now, it's easy for us to understand that, you know, the Son is God, and God has authority over all things. So, so what's, the, what's the problem with that? But, but did you notice that it says that God appointed him to have authority or to, to inherit all things? Why does he have to be appointed to have all things if he is God? Well, there's actually a number of references in the Bible to the Son being appointed to, ha- to all things. So, for instance, Psalm 2, uh, the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. See, that I will give presumes they might, in some sense, not already be his. Or Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this might be a little bit confusing. How is it that the son has to receive these things? Why are they not already his? Well, I think what we need to realize is that, again, because he references uh, in these last days, he's talking about the son not only as he is God, but also as he is man. And as man, he then has to receive it. Um, I'll kind of do a a sweeping view over all of the Bible here for a second. If you were here with us for the last few months, you might remember that we looked at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And from Genesis 1, we saw that that God had uh, created Adam and Eve, and he put Adam and Eve in authority over all things. Remember that? Over all the birds of the air, all the fish of the sea, all the beasts of the earth. Adam and Eve were put in authority over all things. Now, did they steward that authority well? No, no, colossal failure, actually. They they messed up really badly. They did not rule and reign for God's sake. They actually tried to take the place of God. They attempted a coup, and it didn't work. And now, since they were given authority over all things, all of creation is, the Bible says, in bondage. It groans and awaits the day of its liberation. It waits the day when it will be free. When will creation be set free from its bondage? Well, the answer is when a man comes, a human comes to sit upon the throne. And who is that person? It is the Son, Christ, as God and man. His humanity qualifies him to do perfectly that job that Adam and Eve failed to do. You know, I think it's ingrained in our psyche that that there is some hope if only the perfect ruler could sit upon a throne and rule perfectly. Then all would be well. All would be at rest. That's why we put our hope again and again in political leaders. If only this person had authority, then finally all would be made right. And when a candidate gets up and gives a speech, and the substance of the speech is, your biggest problem, your problem is worse than you can imagine, but I am your only hope. Friends, that's, that's a speech that no human, mere human ruler should ever give. Because that's the speech reserved for Christ. And only he can deliver on those promises. 
And the beauty of Christ's rule is that he does something that no politician could ever do. Before he sits upon the throne and makes his enemies a footstool for his feet, he first dies for those enemies to take the penalty that they deserve for their rebellion against him. His kingdom is made up of citizens who once hated him, who attempted to overthrow him, and indeed did kill him. But he has now reconciled them to himself by his blood and reconciled them to each other. Friends, no earthly ruler could ever do that or would ever do that. And that's why our ultimate hope is never in one of them. It's in Christ. But not only are all things to Christ, not only does he receive all things at the end, but notice the end of verse 2, and through whom all things were created. Interestingly, he's going to give the scope of all human history, but where does he start? He starts at the end. Make more sense if we said all things were created through him, and then he'll get things at the end. Sort of like chronologically, but no, the author of Hebrews starts at the end and then works back to the beginning. Just note that. You'll see that theme again and again throughout the rest of the book. But the sun here is not only the omega point, the end point of human history, he's also the alpha point, the source and origin. The Son was there with His Father at the creation of the world. And just as the Father uses the Son as an instrument of our redemption, so also the Father uses the Son as an instrument of our creation. Through the Son, the world came into being. Everything that exists, exists through the Son. It is sustained by the Son. It is here because of the Son. And friends, what does that mean? It means that if you scale back your devotion to Christ, you scale back your devotion to the one who will one day rule the world and reign over all things, and the one who is the source and origin of all things. And the book of Hebrews tells us, it makes it very clear, that if we do that, it is not going to go well for us. If you reject the Son, you reject the very substance and meaning of history. If you reject the sun, you reject the the center of it all. In view of Christ's identity as God and man, and in view of his role as the origin and source of all of history, listen to him. He is qualified to speak. He is worth having his words matter more than anything else. And friends, if you were one of those who who may have struggled with the idea of Christ being the only mediator, the the exclusivity of it that I mentioned at the beginning. Consider, if you really believed all that is said here about Christ, wouldn't you believe that he's exclusive? It's kind of hard to believe these things about Christ's role in history and not conclude that through him only there is life. Well, let me just conclude with a few points of application. First, number one, Quite simply, believe the gospel. It's amazing that the message that God speaks as his climactic and final revelation is a message not first of judgment, but first of grace. It is a message that Christ has paid the punishment for his enemies, for all who would trust in him. And friends, if you're here this morning and you do not know the saving power of Jesus, let me tell you that it's really easy to get on his side. You believe in him. You trust him for your salvation. You look to his person, God and man, and his work, his death and resurrection. 
as what you need for your salvation, and you rely solely upon him. You don't trust in your good works. You don't trust in in what you've given. You don't trust in your church involvement. You trust in Jesus and him alone. And friends, given his stature, given who he is, he is trustworthy. So trust him. Uh, Point number two. Look to his revelation as the final revelation from God. It's all you need. We talk about scripture as being sufficient, and this is why. Because in this final climactic revelation, it is all we need. Friends, I, I think that we live in a world that is obsessed with hearing from God in almost every way but through his son. Right? Dreams and visions? Yeah, that's cool. Near-death experiences? That's great. You can make millions with that. I want one of those, right? Um, no, I don't. Uh, we want revelation. We want something different. We think that if it's new, it's by definition better. But notice, this passage has said that God has spoken by his son. It's a past event. The revelation that we need is already completed and is full. So we must look to that. Sometimes Christians debate about whether God continues to speak through his prophets as he did in the Old Testament. Are there prophets today who would speak the words from God? And I'm not saying that this passage gives any final answer to that question, but one thing I do think we can say is that it definitely orients us back to the past in terms of what has already been spoken as the climactic revelation of God, such that we don't need anything else. We look back to him and what he has already revealed, because that is all we need for salvation. The final point of application is this. Work hard at giving more weight to Christ and more importance to Christ than you give to anything or anyone else. You know, it's easy to believe in theory. It's a lot harder to actually live our lives like that. We had VBS this week, which I think was great. I had a a fantastic time. The kids, I think, learned. And and one of the highlights for me was teaching them the theme verse for the week, which was... um, I'm blanking on it right now. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, a verse that's so important that I just can't remember in that moment. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, you know, we had a high of, I think, 47 kids. It was not easy to get all of them to pay attention at the same time. But I think they were paying attention when I was talking about how easy it is to look to, you know, to really like a friend or a teacher and then to care what that person thinks of you more than you care about anything else, wanting to please that person. And friends, we're, we're like that, aren't we? We latch on to a, to a friend or to this celebrity or this person in our lives, and we, it's all about what they think of us, and it's so easy to be that way. But, but if we believe this scripture of God speaking climactically in the Son, in the status of the Son, we would care what he thinks of us more than we care about anything else, and we would consider his words to us more as having more weight than we would consider the words of anyone else. And and the point here is not just that we can suddenly get that way, where we are attributing this worth to the Son, but that we must work hard. When we notice that we are caring too much what somebody else thinks, we must work to give our allegiance to Christ. The point is is simple. Jesus Jesus is worth 
for his words to matter more than anyone else. He's worthy of that status. He's worthy of that honor. Let's listen to him. Let's pray.